Oh, you want to know who I am? I will show you. I am the one who brings my people out. And in bringing the people out, God also takes them out and he parks them at Sinai for the uh, second half of Exodus, all of Leviticus, first ten chapters of Numbers, and says, this is who I am. This is how I want you to be, and this is how you can come into my presence. So that's why we're taking the time to look at this. Exodus 22 reveals to us who our God is. It's an answer to Pharaoh. It's an answer to Israel when they were to say to Moses, what is his name? Well, this is Yahweh God, the one who says in Exodus 22.1, If a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall restore five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If the thief is found breaking in and he is struck so that he dies, there shall be no guilt for his bloodshed. If the sun is risen on him, there shall be guilt for his bloodshed. He should make full restitution. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the theft is certainly found alive in his hand, whether it is an ox or donkey or sheep, he shall restore double. If a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed and lets loose his animal and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best of his own field and the best of his own vineyard. If fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that stack grain, standing grain, or the field is consumed, he who kindled the fire shall surely make restitution. If a man delivers to his neighbor money or articles to keep and it is stolen out of the man's house, if the thief is found, he shall pay double. If the thief is not found, then the master of the house shall be brought to the judges to see whether he has put his hand into his neighbor's goods. For any kind of trespass, whether it concerns an ox, a donkey, a sheep, or clothing, or for any kind of lost thing which another claims to be his, the cause of both parties shall come before the judges, and whomever the judges condemn shall pay double to his neighbor. If a man delivers to his neighbor a donkey, an ox, a sheep, or any beast to keep, and it dies, is heard or driven away, no one seeing it, then an oath of the Lord shall be between them both, that he has not put his hand into his neighbor's goods. And the owner of it shall accept that, and he shall not make it good. But if, in fact, it is stolen from him, he shall make restitution to the owner of it. If it is torn to pieces by an animal, then he shall bring it as evidence, and he shall not make good what was torn. And if a man borrows anything from his neighbor, and it becomes injured or dies, the owner of it not being with it, he shall surely make it good. But if its owner was with it, he shall not make it good. If it was hired, it came for its hire." And if a man entices a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall surely pay the bride price for her to be his wife. If her father, father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money according to the bride price of virgins. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would open our minds to understand your word. Let us hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Show us yourself, Father. Be our vision in this passage. Help us to see your justice as the one who commands your people to be just to one another. We praise you for this text, and we ask, Lord, that it too would open our minds and show us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Free us from distraction Help me to speak boldly and accurately the things that are in your word so that all of us, your people, can hear and be transformed. 
We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this passage, if you recall, is part of the larger Book of the Covenant that comes immediately after the Ten Commandments and stretches then through chapters 21, 22, and 23. In chapter 24, Moses reads this Book of the Covenant to the people and they say, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. This Book of the Covenant speaks to Israel and says, you heard the Ten Commandments, here is how these high-level moral principles apply in everyday life. When you borrow something and you break it, what do the Ten Commandments have to say about that? Right? We all know thou shalt not steal, but I didn't steal it. Or what about when you borrow something and then it's gone? You can't find it. It probably got lost in the shuffle. What now? How do the Ten Commandments apply here? Well, this chapter talks about that. And it's essentially all about, the passage we're looking at, all about property crimes. What is the just response to property crimes? And as we'll see, basically what we saw last time, biblical justice for property crimes is all about proportional restitution. If you make someone else's property go away, you have to give it back. You have to proportionally restore what you took. So this shows us the character of God. God is about justice, and justice demands proportional restitution. It starts with proportional restitution for animal theft. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and then goes through a bunch of scenarios relating to animal theft, cattle rustling, sheep stealing, what happens? Well, The first thing to notice really is the difference in this law between Israel's law, God's law, and the laws of the ancient Near East. The laws of the cultures around Israel specified, if someone is taking your stuff, feel free to kill him. There is no penalty for killing someone who takes your stuff because property is extremely valuable. Or if you didn't kill the thief, then the restitution was sky high, 15 times as much, 20 times as much. You take one ox, you have to repay 20 oxen. And that was specifically if you take royal oxen or temple oxen. If you mess with the temple stuff, you have to repay 20 times as much. God's law is much more fair. You shall restore five oxen for an ox, four sheep for a sheep, if you manage to fence the stolen animals. If you don't sell them, they're caught with you alive, then you simply restore double, verse 4. There's also the parenthetical statement about death. If the thief is coming in in the night and you kill him, that's okay. There's no blood guilt. Because in the night, you can't judge someone's intentions. You don't know whether the intruder is just there to take a sheep or whether he's there to take your life. But if the sun has risen on him, verse 3, there is guilt. If you walk out in the daytime and catch someone stealing your, your car or your sheep or whatever it might be and you say, you can't have that and shoot him, God says, that's blood guilt. You may not take human life for the sake of stuff. Human life is more valuable than stuff across the board. So, Uh, A rebuke 
to some of the warmongering or trigger-happy types in this part of the world who are openly say that if they saw someone stealing their property, they wouldn't hesitate to shoot him like a dog, day or night. God says, no. If you happen to know that all he's doing is thieving, you may not harm or kill him. He can be sold for his theft. He has to make restitution. And he has to give back what he thought to profit, essentially. If the theft is found alive in his hand, he restores double. That is, if you took an animal and you thought, this animal is worth $500, I'm going to make $500 by selling this sheep. Well, the fact of the matter is, in God's justice, you lose $500. You have to give back the one you took and another one in order to make it right. So that's justice. You don't just fail to get the gain you thought you would get. You actually lose the amount you thought to gain by your illicit activities. So why does verse 1 say five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep? Probably because it's very hard to judge the value of an animal that's not present. Not all oxen are worth the same amount. Not all sheep are worth the same amount. Not all horses are worth the same amount. Animals are of varying quality. And it's quite possible to find a horse today that's worth five of some other horses. And that is most likely why God says, if the animal is gone, if you slaughtered it, and it's in the freezer, if you sold it, and all you have is a bill of sale for this stolen animal, there's no way to judge the value of that animal. And therefore, you repay five oxen for an ox, four sheep for a sheep. Under the American legal system, if a thief is caught but has nothing, he goes to jail. And the person he stole from eats the loss. In other words, the thief is enslaved. No attempt is made to get him to contribute the value of what he took back to the person from whom he took it. Rather fascinating. The justice of God speaks to our moral intuition and we can say, this is right. You thought to profit from easy money, you actually will lose that amount. If you have nothing, you get sold into slavery and work off the debt that you have incurred. There's also proportional restitution for fodder theft. Verses 5 and 6 talks about two different ways to steal food, steal fodder. If a man lets his animal graze in someone else's field or vineyard, if you have a cow and it breaks into the neighbor's field and starts to eat the neighbor's forage, then you have to restore from the best of your own field, the best of your own vineyard. The same goes for carelessness with fire. If you burn up stack grain, if you burn standing grain, if you burn a field, the one who kindled the fire shall surely make restitution. Again, the thief has to give back the amount that he took. And therefore, if you take if your animal takes food for a whole day from the neighbor, you have to give a day's food back to the neighbor. You lose the amount by which you thought to profit. Now, obviously, your animal still got to eat for that day, and so it's not quite as stark as the theft situation in the previous paragraph. But clearly, the same principle of proportional restitution is at work. Then we go into this long section for lost and stolen items. If a man delivers stuff to his neighbor to keep. 
Now, that seems, that actually happens pretty regularly. Uh, I remember as a kid taking piano lessons, I walked into my piano teacher's house one day, and he had a second grand piano sitting there in his tiny living room. I said, wow, where did you get another piano? Oh, my friend is in, Af- or in Europe for a year. He asked me to piano sit for him. So there my teacher was, you know, piano sitting. He's got two grand pianos now. Well, God says, this happens. You ask people to care for your stuff. You make them store something on your behalf. Or, on the other hand, you borrow something from them. This happens all the time. And things can get lost. Things can get stolen in this kind of situation. Now, I don't think my piano teacher ever came out and said, huh, back to one grand piano. What happened to the second one? But uh, my parents have been asked to store lots of different wheeled vehicles for people, four-wheelers and old army jeeps and things like that. If you have some property, people will say, can I park this here and forget about it for the next five years? God says, there are some regulations to deal with this. So, what do we have here? Well, if the thief is caught, he pays double. Again, the same principle we saw with the fodder theft, with the the animal theft. You're impoverished by the amount that you thought to impoverish your neighbor. Whatever you took, you pay double. And that doesn't matter really whether you're stealing from a storage unit on someone else's property or whether you're stealing from the property of the owner himself. But if the thief is not found, God says the one who is supposed to be watching the stuff has to pay the full value to the owner in every case where the stuff simply disappeared. If you say, yeah, I'll keep that for you, and then it vanishes, well, that's on you. You should have protected your neighbor's stuff, right? And if you don't want to be a guard for the neighbor's stuff, you shouldn't say, I will keep this. In our day and age, we have banks and safe deposit boxes. Again, if the bank loses your money, it's their job to find it again. And if they can't find it, then they need to get some money and repay you what they lost. That's what the Lord is saying. On the other hand, if it was an animal that plausibly walked off on its own, or if you as the guardian say, I'm not the thief, I have no idea what happened to it, It appears that it lost itself. It was an animal that wandered off. It was an animal that got eaten by wild beasts. I swear to God that I have no idea what happened. Then he shall accept that and shall not, the one who was storing it shall not make it good. Verse 11. If it lost itself, I'm off the hook. But if I lost it, I'm on the hook. If I let a thief take it, I'm on the hook. But if I swear I didn't touch it, you need to accept that. The Lord covers a number of different scenarios here, but in ways that, again, we can say, this is the justice of God. He's taking, thou shalt not steal, honor your father and mother, and boiling them down into, so what do I do when I said, yeah, you can park your donkey in my stable for a week, and I go out there one morning, and it appears that the fox got in and ate its leg off. What now? Well, God says, what now? Finally, what if, well, not finally, but the next thing God goes into, Moses goes into, is borrowing. If a man borrows anything 
from his neighbor. The first thing to say is that God cares about how you borrow. Borrowing is not a morally neutral activity. Borrowing is something that the law of God regulates. Borrowing is a way of transferring costs. All of us borrow from time to time. Typically we borrow something, an expensive tool or piece of equipment that we will only need to use a limited number of times. Right? No one borrows something like a toilet because it takes a long time to install and it lasts for many years. Then it's needed. But something like a chainsaw, I need to trim this tree one time. I won't have to trim any tree that I own for another five to ten years. There's no point in me investing the money into a chainsaw. The Lord has several things to say about borrowing. The first thing is that anything you borrow, you are morally responsible for. Now, it's not clear that God is saying you're legally responsible for it. Certainly morally responsible for it. If it gets injured, if it dies while you're borrowing it, you make it good. Now, this should all give us pause about borrowing things. If it is something you truly cannot afford to replace, then you probably shouldn't borrow it. If you want to borrow a piece of equipment that's worth $50,000 or $250,000, right? beware. And you say, if this front-end loader dies while I'm using it, there is no way I'm going to be able to repay this thing. Therefore, right, God is saying, don't borrow it. If, some, if you borrow something and it breaks, fix it. If it breaks completely, you need to buy a new one. So, on the other hand, God also says, owners, if you stand there and watch somebody break it, that's on you. If, well, what is it? If its owner was, was with it, he shall not make it good. And if the owner is standing there and lets you destroy the equipment or harm the animal or break the tool, then, well, the owner lost it. Essentially, it's as if the owner broke it. So the point is not that these things are enforceable in court. I don't know whether they were in ancient Israel. I don't know whether they are in contemporary America. The point is the moral side of things. Are you a Christian borrower? If you are, you will take care of the thing you borrow, and you will return it in good condition. And if it breaks, you'll get another one. Right? If you burn up the gasoline in it, refill it. If you scratch the paint, repaint it. Hiring, renting, is a different story. If it was rented, it came for its hire. God seems to be saying, if you can't afford to replace something, rent it, don't borrow it. Because of the rental fee you're paying, you're transferring some risk to the person from whom you rented. And if the thing breaks... It doesn't put you morally on the hook the same way that breaking a borrowed item does. If you borrow something, that person is doing you a favor and you need to respond in kind. If you rent something, the favor is not nearly so large. Now again, this is morally speaking. Legally speaking, I think like the rental car company, for instance, considers you to be entirely on the hook for any damage you do to that vehicle. And if you go in there and say, Exodus twenty-two fifteen, if it was hired... It came for its hire. You aren't getting a dime out of me. I'll take out bankruptcy first. They'll just roll their eyes, right? 
This is morally speaking, not necessarily legally speaking. Finally, we have the virginity law, the proportional restitution for stolen virginity. And there are a number of commentators out there that complain about this one. Oh, God, he puts laws about virginity in with the property laws. And here it is again. A woman is her father's property, so benighted, so medieval, so ancient. Now, is that what the text says? If you read the text, it doesn't say that the father is compensated because his daughter is now damaged goods. It's making a totally different point that virginity is valuable. The lost property here is not the woman. The lost property is her virginity. Virginity is valuable. It's a very expensive piece of social relational capital. And God is saying, if you steal that, right? this is something you can take. And if you take it, if you steal that, you will pay full price for it. A man who takes it is required to make monetary restitution. It's not that he's lessening the value of the dad's property. The text doesn't say anything about that. Rather, it says that the man is lessening the value of what the woman has to offer. In terms of that culture, and certainly we can say even statistically today, in terms of marriages where the partners were not virgins when they got married, statistically have a significantly worse chance than those where the partners were virgins. And it's true, right? God says it's valuable. The culture of that day recognized its value. And therefore, God is protecting vulnerable women. In those days, as today, men were not above sleeping with a woman in order to harvest her virginity and cut her value in the open market, right? thus allowing them to take sexual pleasure cheaply. God says in the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, sexuality should cost your entire life. You join to each other as one flesh. That means you share everything. All your property is held in common. But here, right, the man entices the virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her. It doesn't say she resisted. In fact, she consents. So the text seems to say. But God is saying, women, you're not allowed to give away your virginity. And even if you do, even if you tell the man, oh, you can have this for free, the law comes in and says, no, you can't have it for free. You pay, and you pay the full bride price for virgin. Now, what is this bride price for virgins? It's what we call a dowry. That is, it's money given to the woman as an endowment that she has in case anything happens to her or or in case anything happens to the man or to the marriage. If in those days, the man was the provider, if you lose your man, you're a widow, you're in bad shape. The man, therefore, when he comes to suggest marriage, to propose marriage, is required to bring a piece of capital, a piece of property worth something that the woman could live on if anything were to happen to the man. That's what the bride price means. It's reflected, the custom is reflected down to this day in the idea of the engagement ring as a way of saying, I would like to marry you. Here's what I have to offer. If anything happens to me, you've got this $55,000 rock 
that you can go and sell and hopefully pay your debts with. Now, obviously, few people in our day get engaged with an engagement ring that's worth enough to be a substantial sum that someone could live on for an extended period of time. But that is the idea behind the bride price. And I think it's probably fair to say that in terms of purchasing power parity, the bride price in that era was far larger than the bride price is today. A man was expected to present something, some cattle or some land or some kind of durable, valuable property that could be useful for an extended period of time. So God is saying that if a man takes something valuable, in this case virginity, from a vulnerable woman, the man has to pay the full value of the thing he took, even if he took it with the woman's consent. Sort of like the Marxist concept of objective interest. Your class deserves this, even if you don't recognize it. God is saying, women, your virginity is valuable, even if you don't recognize that. And therefore, I insist, as God, that the man who deflowers you pays according to the bride price of virgins. Not according to the bride price of, well, cut-rate women. Well, God is a God of perfect justice. That applies in situations as diverse as premarital fornication and fire spreading through the field. Regardless of what the situation is, if it's a property crime where something is taken, something is lost, something is broken, there is one principle of justice, and that principle is restitution. Property needs to be restored, and the one who took it, the one who broke it, needs to lose, generally speaking, by the amount that he thought to profit through his theft. If you're God's people today, which you are through Jesus, you should admire the justice of God and you should practice the justice of God. You're called to live in justice, whether you're borrowing goods, storing goods, grazing animals, thinking about getting married, or more. God is just. And we, his people, must be just too. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to live as the people of God. We ask that you would help us to be responsible in our borrowing and in our storing of items. We ask that you would help us to restore whatever we've taken. Like Zacchaeus did when he became a believer, when he saw Jesus. So, Father, help us not to profit illicitly but to give back anything by which we might have profited. Lord, we praise you for your justice. We thank you for this law of proportional restitution. And we ask, Father, that you would help us to live by it because we are your people, the ones you brought out of Egypt into the glorious liberty of the children of God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.